Holy Spirit, we gather here in your name. We ask that you would meet us in this place. I ask that you would show us your presence, show us your peace, and show us your power. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So it was fall of 2007, and I was uh, in a worship service just like this, and I was sitting listening to a sermon just like you're doing now, and about two months before that, I just resigned my position as a pastor at Woodlands Church uh, because my family and I were candidates now to become missionaries to serve overseas in Lisbon, Portugal, and we begun the uh, stage of what's called uh, fundraising development, where we were supposed to raise our funds before we could leave and go to Portugal. So uh, we are no longer in the pastorate at that point. We're moved over into this place to raise funds. And I was sitting in a worship service like this, listening to a sermon, and the sermon was on financial stewardship and all that God gave us and how we're supposed to take care of that. And it was an interesting place in our lives because we just sold our house. We were getting rid of lots of our possessions because we are getting, getting ready to move overseas. Uh, we uh, didn't have a whole lot of money. I was working at a t-shirt embroidery silk screening place just to get some extra money. Uh, we were in those spots where some of you can relate to where you get to the end of the month and there's more month than money and you're trying to figure out how to do that. And so I, we were, it, that's kind of like how life was for us. Um, Add to that, I was finishing my master's degree at seminary at the time, so I'd be well prepared on the mission field. So on Sundays, I would go to church, uh, come home, hang out with my family, and Sunday night I leave, go down to Chicago area where our seminary is, stay the night with family, and then I would take classes all day Monday and drive home Monday. That was kind of a weekly pattern. And I figured out it took, I needed 40 bucks every week to, for gas down and back. I could do it on 40 bucks. And I remember just always getting to the end of the week and wanting to make sure I had that 40 bucks so I could turn around what I had to do. This particular week, I didn't have that 40 bucks. And I remember listening to this sermon on financial stewardship and how God provides. And to be honest, I was feeling kind of guilty that we didn't have more savings before making this transition uh, so that we'd be in a better spot. And I was under the guilt of that. And then I just said, well, I'm hearing this sermon about how God provides and how we should ask him for our needs, so I'm just going to do that. Because I could just take out a credit card and put gas in my tank and go and deal with it like that, but maybe God wants to show me something. And so I remember just praying, God, I need 40 bucks before I leave to go to Chicago today. And I just asked that if it's your will, would you provide 40 bucks? Service goes on, I listen, and it was kind of a weight off my shoulders. I was able to kind of say, well, I gave it to God, it's in his hands, now I can pay attention to the sermon. So I paid attention to the sermon, sang the worship song at the end, uh, worship's done, we're out in the foyer, I'm talking and visiting with people, and I'm getting ready to leave. I walk across the church parking lot, and a dear friend of ours comes up and he says, hey, hold on before you go. And he pulls out two $20 bills and said, God told me to give this to you. And I didn't believe it, to my shame. I couldn't believe that it happened. I was totally shocked that fast 
I took those two $20 bills. I thanked him. I told him what happened. Actually, I didn't get a chance to tell him what happened until later. But every week from that point on, that gentleman, until I graduated seminary, gave me $40 in cash before I left church Sunday. But I took that $40 home, put it on the floor in the living room, got our kids. Pam came out. We told our kids the story because we wanted to know about a God who will move when we ask. And the mistake you can make is to think that that was about money because it wasn't. It was about being at a crossroads in life where you could fix it yourself or you live and trust God and his ways enough that you pause and say, God, would you please come into this because I want you to be part of everything in my life. And that's what it stood for me. It was a lesson for me that knowing what's going to lie ahead in the mission field and even later on in life, what is going to be my default? Fix it myself or invite God in? Now, that is $40 in the bigger scheme of things is not a really big deal. Some of you are facing situations and trials much, much more dire than a lack of $40. Some of you are facing health issues that you can't fix on your own. No matter if you could, you couldn't fix it and take, there's no pathway of you taking care of it your way and God, God has to come through. Some of you are facing relational issues like that. Some of you are facing addictions like that. The story that we're going to look at today is kind of like that. There's a group of people who are facing an impossible situation. For them, it meant death and destruction unless God comes through. That's what they're looking at. And so we're going to dive in and look at that. And I'm excited for us to be in this series where we know uh, and are learning about who God is so we can cry out to him in prayer and be amazed at what he does. To have the awe and wonder of God come front, front and center in our lives and let it change us. That prayer isn't just this religious thing we do, but it's a personal connection with the all-powerful living God. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to open it up to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Uh, also, just word of note, if you come here regularly, whether it's on your phone or uh, paper Bible, please bring a Bible. Uh, we go through the Bible every Sunday, and it's just good for you to join us in that, so um, please do that. Uh, Second Chronicles, if you're new to the Bibles in the Old Testament, if you uh, get past Numbers and Deuteronomy and start seeing 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and then 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. If you hit D Jeremiah or Daniel or Psalms, you went too far back up. And we're going to see this amazing story in 2 Chronicles 20 that un unfolds like a five-act play. It's going to be like we're going to sit in the theater of God this morning and watch this five-act play unfold. And as it does unfold, I'm going to make some observations. And the first thing we see in Act 1 is a desperate situation. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 Look at the very first two words. After this. It's important to say, after what? After what? What led us to this spot? And so we want to deal with that. Well, about a hundred years before this story took place, there's the people of God, Israel, and they were divided. 
So they were a divided kingdom. There's 12 tribes that made up the people of God of Israel. Ten went north and called themselves the kingdom of Israel. Two went south and called themselves the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel at this time was led by a king named Ahab. Ahab was an evil king. He turned his back on God, worshipped a bunch of false gods, did a bunch of evil, horrible things. The king in the south is the main character of our story. His name's King Jehoshaphat. He was a godly king. But he took things in his kingdom in his own hands, and he said, you know, if I make an alliance with the northern king of Israel, who keeps battling with us, and I reach out to him and create this natural bond, it will be best for my people, even though God told him not to do that. So he became friendly with this king Ahab. And he built this alliance. In fact, his son married Ahab's daughter. And God was not pleased because God told him not to do that. And so a prophet came to him named Jehu and said, you shouldn't make this alliance and be friendly with this evil king. Cut it off. And you know what Jehoshaphat did? He cut it off. And he repented. And he went before God and said, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I should have obeyed what you told me to do, led this kingdom the way you told me to lead it, but I took it in my own hands and tried to figure it out, and in doing so, I sinned. Please forgive me. And you know what happened? God forgave him, but then a spiritual revival broke out in Judah. All the people in the land of Judah began to turn their hearts towards God. They began to pray. They began to seek God more. They began to hold on to him with such a great faithfulness. They left behind all the things of this world that pulled them away from God. And there was this spiritual revival that broke out. And that is the this in the after this. So that's where we are in the story. Let's look at the first three verses. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Menunites, these are enemies of Judah, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some of the people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in the Hazazanan Tamar, that is En Gedi, and it's here. This army's come, and it's going to attack us. It's going to overpower us. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. You see right there in verse 3 the results of spiritual revival. They're in this impossible situation. This, these three armies made an alliance to be one powerful army greater than what Judah has. They're knocking on their door. They're saying, we're going to destroy you. And the knee-jerk reaction of King Jehoshaphat is to inquire of the Lord and proclaim a fast God's doing something in these people's hearts for that to be the reaction. What is a fast? Fasting is abstaining from food for a designated amount of time to humble ourselves and draw us closer to God. Abstaining from food for a designated amount of time to humble ourselves and draw us closer to God. That's what a fast is. Fasting is not a hunger strike to get God to do what we want him to do. Fasting is not a bargaining chip with God, that if we do that, then he's on the hook to do what we want. Fasting is not something that super spiritual people do, but no one else can do. 
Fasting sharpens our focus in seeking God. And so Jehoshaphat in this desperate time called his people to fast. This is a great picture of fasting. We see this practice called fasting laid out throughout the scriptures. And I highly encourage you to come to the evening seminar that Ashley's doing tonight to learn more about fasting because it's a powerful, powerful thing in the walk of a follower of God. So Jehoshaphat calls his people to fast. And he also has this huge prayer meeting. Look at verse 4. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. They came from every town in this region to come. So there's this three-army alliance ready to attack them. There's no way they can win. They don't have the army they don't have the time. They don't have the resources. It is over. So the king tells the people to fast, and then he gathers the people to pray and call out to God, who they've gotten to know in stronger ways over these last few years. And then, act two, the king prays as well. This is what Jehoshaphat does. Let's read verses 5 to 6. This is what Tom read for us. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord. The temple was located in Jerusalem. At the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard, he said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God in heaven? You rule over all kingdoms and the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. He acknowledges who God is and he takes and he puts this whole impossible situation that is striking fear in the hearts of everyone there and he puts it into a godly perspective. He sets it before the cosmic throne of God and says, compared to God, this enemy that's gathering is nothing. This is who God is. And in his prayer, he's saying that, reminding God, which is a technique that is used in prayer often, but by praying that, the people are being moved and strengthened in their hearts as well. Look at verse 7. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of your Abraham, your friend? He's reminding them of this covenant promise that God made with Abraham. Abraham was your friend, and you said you would never leave your people. And so we're reminding you that you said you'd be with us. Remembrance is a huge thing in the Bible. The word remember occurs many, many times throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. It was a spiritual practice. They were supposed to remember the faithfulness of God, remember what he promised, remember his covenants. That's a knee-jerk that should happen in the follower of Jesus when we experience difficult times. He goes on in his prayer, and he talks about the people of God. They had lived in this temple. They've lived in this land. They've lived in it and built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, no matter what bad thing happens, whether it's the sword of judgment 
or a plague or famine. We will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and we will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and you will save us. He is declaring that we are one in heart with all the godly that came before us who committed to stand in your presence. And the tangible presence at that time was this temple in the city of Jerusalem where they were. That was a tangible presence of God. And he's saying we are committing to be one in heart with the people of God who came before us. You gave them this land. They cried out in trust to you. And we will do the same. He is telling God that no matter what happens, whether you stop this army from invading and attacking us or not, your name and your glory is our top concern. And if we die, we will die standing in your presence, acknowledging you as king. He was setting the stage. Look at verses 10 and 12. Now he reminds God of the situation. He prays a prayer of lament here, which we talk about a lot at Crossview. But now, here are men from Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came to Egypt. So they faced these enemies before, the people of Israel, and God said, stop, don't take these people out. And now you could almost hear the human side of Jehoshaphat's heart saying, if you would have let us, God, take them out, we wouldn't be in this situation. But you didn't do that. You see, you could be real with God. He says, you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt, so they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, now, so he's gone through, remember, lament, turn, complaint. He gave his complaint. Now he's asking, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. And then he turns to trust in the lament. And he prays an absolutely astounding, amazing prayer at the end of verse 12. He prays one of the, my most favorite prayers in all the Bible because it's just so real and honest and at the same time, God glorifying. He says at the end of this, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We have no idea what to do, but our eyes are on you. Nothing could have been further from the truth. What are they going to do? There's this army that is three times, if not more, their size. There's no way they can get out of this. And the prayer that comes from the lips of the king that echoes the hearts of the people is, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. It speaks of humility. It speaks of desperation. It speaks also of his complete trust that there's nowhere else we can go except God himself. The only one who can help us is God Almighty. But it also shows us the best thing we can do in desperate times. Our eyes are on you. We look to you to come and be God. What are the difficulties facing your life now? 
Is there a serious health diagnosis? Our eyes are on you. Is there a serious financial situation? Our eyes are on you. Is there a serious marriage crisis or parent-child relationship brokenness? Our eyes are on you. This is the heart posture we take when the impossible comes into our lives. This is the heart posture we take when the overwhelming comes into our lives. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Crossview Church, memorize this prayer. Pray it often. Let it be what you run to when the overwhelming news and the unbelievable, hard-to-wrap-your-mind-around situation comes into your life. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And look what happened in verse 13. All the men of Judah with their wives and children and the little ones stood there before the Lord. After the king prays this prayer, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All the people stand in God's presence. They're saying, this is our prayer as well. We poured out our heart and now we sit before you and we wait. They stood in God's presence. They waited on God. Waiting on God means they placed their hope in nothing else except God himself. Waiting on God means that they anticipate his deliverance. They anticipate him doing something. They place their trust in him and him alone. These people, in the most desperate moment of their lives up to this point, fasted, prayed, and with anticipation, they're waiting on God. This is really, really, really a great example for us. Listen, if we can go back in time and interact with these people in this moment, what they're dealing with, you know what we'd find? That they are scared to death. They have no, that we don't know what to do. That's true. They have no idea what to do. And they're living in fear. They're scared to death. We have this weird thing with fear as Christians. I don't know where it comes from. And we sing about it a lot. We read about it a lot. And it's almost like, you know, we have to pretend like we're not afraid. Fear not. But inside we're shaken down to our core. As a Christian, what you do with fear is it's not that you put on this whitewash and say, I'm pretending I'm not afraid because I'm not supposed to fear. No, with fear you run to your heavenly father and you say, I'm scared to death. I don't know what to do. My eyes are on you. Will you help me? You run to God. That's what you do with fear. And he loves it when you do that. Isn't that what a good human father would do? How much more our heavenly father? So if we can go back, these people would be shaking in their boots, scared to death, experience a fear at a level they've never ever experienced, but they didn't allow their fear to paralyze them. They also didn't pretend like it didn't exist. They took their truckload of fear and ran to God and said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And now in the midst of their fear, 
They're standing together of strength of heart waiting for God. And by praying that prayer, they said, we are powerless, Lord, so you must fight for us. This captures their trust. They're running to the right place. So what's going to happen? What's God going to do? Well, Act 3, God responds to his people. Look at what happens in verse 14 to 17. Then the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit's alive and active in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph. And he stood in the assembly. So the Holy Spirit came and fell upon this young man. This would happen often in these settings when people's hearts were towards God in the Old Testament. And this young man speaks for God through the power of the Holy Spirit and says, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you right now in this moment. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march down where they are. March down against them. They will be climbing up the passes, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Drool. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. The Holy Spirit comes on this young man. He speaks these words. He speaks on behalf of God, and God says three things. First, he says, listen to me. Oftentimes, we get into situations, and the first thing we do is we forget everything God said. We forget everything he did. When we get to those situations, we have to remember the words of God. We have to listen to what he said. Then God said to them, do not fear. You don't have to be afraid. You're quaking in your boots, but I got you. I have this. It's easier said than done. There's three armies coming to one to overpower us, but he's saying, you have to trust me. Do not fear. And you want to know why you don't have to fear? Because this battle doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. God says to these people, in your desperation, in that spot where you're quaking in your boots, don't be fooled by what you see with your eyes. Because there's one greater than the huge army that's been assembled. And he says, I am he, and I am going to be the one to take care of this whole thing. You don't have to do anything except sit and watch. What a huge relief to these people. They don't even have to fight, yet they were promised victory and security. It was like water in the desert. They were at the end of their rope, physically, emotionally, mentally. And God says, this is my battle. You sit and watch. And look at how they respond in verse 18 and 19. King Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Could there be any better response? Then some Levites who are priests, and this would be like a team of worship leaders from the 
Korahites and the Korites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. They responded in humble worship and powerful praise. Humble worship and powerful praise. And notice, God didn't even do anything yet. He just said, I'm going to take care of this. But the word of the Lord was enough because they knew who the word was coming from. They knew the character of God. They knew if God says it, it's going to happen. God taught them that previously. So they trusted what they heard because they knew the heart behind who was speaking. And then the moment we've been waiting for, Act 4, where God moves. Look at verse 20. Early in the morning they left for the desert of Tekoa, and they set out, and Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Israel, or people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. He's saying, remember what was said. He knows the human condition so well. Where God can tell us something, we know his character, we know it can be trusted, and we say, did he really say that? He knew how fickle the human heart and will can be. So he's, as a good godly leader, reminding his people, hang on to the word that the Lord gave us. Don't forget what God said. And then he bought them all iPhones and had them listen to worship as they walked forward. That's the equivalent of what he did. Look at verse 21. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. They sang this song to God as they marched to see what lays a hold of them in their future. Worship takes our eyes off of the trial and circumstance and overwhelming thing in front of us and puts it back onto the God who speaks, the God who declares, the God we pray to, That's why worship is powerful. And our equivalent is to put on the iPhones, to worship God, to remind your heart and strengthen your heart into who God is and what he has done. And the moment comes where we've been waiting for, where God changes everything. Look at verses 22 and 23. As they began to sing in praise... So they're singing worship because they trust God. Then the Lord sets these ambushes against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. So as they worship, all of a sudden, this three-alliance army starts to fight each other out of nowhere. It's like the finger of God went in, and they started like fighting and battling and taking one another out. Verse 23, the Ammonites and the Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. All of a sudden, this army was wiped out in its own, and the people of Israel sat and watched. Verse 24, when the men of Judah came to that place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they only saw dead bodies laying on the ground. No one had escaped. No more army. The hand of God moved. And they didn't even have to fight. God did what he said he was going to do. 
25 and 26. So Jehoshaphat and his men went and carried off their plunder. They found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of um, Baraka, where they praised the Lord. This is why they, it is called the Valley of Baraka to this day. God delivered them in a way that blew their mind. Now, when we read verses 24 to 26, our 21st century ears tend to do something. Sometimes they say, okay, if God's all loving, then why did he kill all these people? And we stiff arm what's happening. Don't stiff arm what's happening. Let me explain what's going on. Three things you need to remember. First of all, number one, this was a brutal, brutal culture. This was like what we think of when the Vikings are there. These are people that warred and battled all the time. This was part of their culture. And the Bible is written in the context of what's happening in that time. So we have to pause our 21st century ears and minds of what we think is right, proper, and correct, and look at what this is in this culture and context, because that's what the culture and context was. Number two, these three armies that aligned were absolutely evil and destructive, and the things that they would do would make you sick in how they treated people. People prayed that God would wipe out these armies for years because of what they did, and God in his justice in this moment moved to stop it. It was his just hand that made this happen. Number three, we have to remember because of the context. Remember, the Bible is written not to us, but for us. The Bible is not written to us, it's written for us. So we take it with all of its context, and then we apply it to our lives. The point you need to know is God promised he would move, and he did. He is faithful. He really, really, really is. On midnight, January 27th, 1956, an amazing thing happened in the heart of a young pastor. There was a young pastor who was facing a challenge in his church he never, ever faced. He was only there two years, still trying to get to know what it's like to be a pastor. And all of a sudden, he's preaching and there's movements and meetings going on and then all of a sudden his church is set on fire. All of a sudden the community around him is turned into upheaval and people are doing violent acts left and right and he's in his house and he's getting all these phone calls of advice and telling him what to do and then all of a sudden he got a call that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said was a call that shook him to his core. And on the other side of the phone, this person said, you have three days to get out of town or else we're taking out your whole family one by one and then we're going to take you out as well. And he said that was kind of commonplace in that moment, but there was something about this call that shook him to his core. He said he was scared to death. He was afraid. And what he did is he went down into the kitchen, he put on a pot of coffee, and he sat at his dining room table. And he journaled, and he said, for the first time in that moment, I really felt afraid. And I said, God, you called me into ministry. You didn't tell me this is what I was going to face. And now that I'm facing this, I want you to know, I want to be honest, I'm losing my courage. I don't know if I can continue to do this. 
And in the midst of that fear, he heard this inner voice in his heart that said simply, stand on the truth for I am with you. God responded to Jehoshaphat and the people's prayers. He was going to move in a powerful way more than they could ever imagine or think, and he did. And when that happens, it does something to the human heart. We are transformed. The last act of our play is God's people were transformed. Look at 27 to 30. Then led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem. For the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lyres and trumpets to worship him. The fear of God, this awe of God, came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard what happened and how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace. Not absence of conflict, but wholeness, completeness, shalom, why? For his God had given him rest on every side. We don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. Net result, wholeness. Completeness. The hand of God. People were transformed. Because turning and trusting in God brings peace and transformation to our heart. So quickly as I wrap up, what can we learn from this? What do we take away from this story? First of all, number one, God is much, much, much bigger than what our eyes see and our ears hear. The situations you face, you have to know God is bigger. It's too easy to be blinded by the here and now and to have voices of doubt rise in our minds. Number two, God loves it when we turn to him, especially in desperate times especially when we're imperfect in how we walk with him. God's not there wagging his finger saying, well, I would help, but last week you did this, and last week you did this, and last... No, he's saying, in your broken imperfection, when you're facing the overwhelming, come to me, and I will always take you in. He loves it when we come to him in our desperate times. He can do so much more than we believe. Number three, when we turn to God in difficult times, he draws us closer to him. We get to know who he is more. God, this story that we just read, God is like that today. That's who God is. When God reveals himself and his character in the pages of the Bible, it's good then, it's good now, and it's good forever and ever and ever. That's how he is. He's never, ever going to change. And when we're in those times and we call it to him, he draws us closer to himself. Writer and author Ken Wilson tells the story of his house in Pittsburgh that he grew up in in 1920. It was out in the country. His three stories had a cellar in the basement. He said it reeked of mothballs, and you could hear the windows rattle in the wind. He would be trying to sleep in his room and the windows would be rattling and keeping him up and he asked his dad to please fix it and his dad would stick matchsticks in the gap to try to close it, but it never really helped. Ken remembers that being the youngest, he had to always go to bed first. If you're the youngest and you experience that, you can say amen. He remembers braving 
going up the steps to his bedroom because all the rooms were on the second floor or the third floor. There was no electricity from the second floor up. So they had to turn a gas light on, walk up to the third floor to the bed, and then shut the gas light off and it'd be dark. He said that bed in that room on the third floor seemed to be at the end of the earth, remote from any human habitation, close to all the unexplained noises and the dark, secret things that happen at night. He said, sometimes my father would read me a story, but inevitably that time would come where my dad would get up, turn, walk out, shut the light off, walk out that door, and I could hear his steps on the stairs growing fainter and fainter and fainter. Then all would be quiet except the rattling windows and my cowering imagination. He said, I remember at times my father would say, would you rather I leave the light on and leave you for a while and I'll come and shut it off later? Or would you rather I shut it off and stay here with you for a while? He said, I always chose presence with darkness versus light with absence. I always chose darkness with presence versus light with absence. I always chose darkness with presence versus light with absence. As God's children, we always, 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 always get to experience presence in the darkness. God says he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us, he'll never turn his back. No matter what you're facing, no matter what overwhelming situation is occupying your mind right now as a follower of Jesus Christ, you will always have his presence. Don't let anything talk you out of that promise. Knowing we have his presence leads to wholeness, peace, fulfillment, we have to grab onto that presence. Remember your prayer card. If you didn't have one, grab one in the Welcome Center on the way out. You grab onto his presence by doing these things, by pausing, praising who he is, by relating to him, confessing your sin and remembering who you're talking to, and then asking him for your needs like a child would to a loving father, and then yielding to him, surrendering and obeying and walking out your life in love. There's no better way for us to wrap this up than to pray back that amazing prayer that King Jehoshaphat prayed. So please bow your heads as I pray.